Now we come to the third section. And the third section is the reign of Saul in his conflict with David. And now for the first time ever, well, we've only had one king to begin with, but we're going to have two anointed kings simultaneously. There's only going to be one other time in the history of Israel where you're going to have two anointed kings at the same time, and that's later in 2 Kings chapter 8, 9, and 10 with Jehu when he is anointed as king when there's still another king going on. And I don't mean like your dad's ruling and you kind of co-rule for a while, but two completely different kings who are rivals to each other who are simultaneously anointed at the same time. These are the only two times. And so what's very interesting is that God is going to allow two kings to exist at the same time because he's got another purpose he's trying to accomplish here. This is mostly the contrast. Now in chapter 16, David will be anointed, but he will not do anything nor speak. You will not be introduced to David as a person. He will be anointed, but he'll have no dialogue and he'll do no action. And in that way, David is not really introduced in a real life kind of a sense. Chapter 17, with his fight with Goliath, that's his, your first encounter with David ever. And that's a very important chapter and a very misunderstood chapter. Hey, Veggie Tales watered it down big time. And a lot of our Sunday school classes, no offense, do too. But then it's in 18 and through the rest of the book that the narrator is going to focus on an interchange. Where it's going to go to Saul and then David, then Saul, then David, then Saul and David, all the way through. And the purpose is to compare and contrast the two. And what he's doing is setting up Saul, and then David will do something like it. And the question is, are they the same or they're different? And sometimes they will, and sometimes they won't be the different. David's going to get anointed in chapter 16. He's going to be introduced in 17, and then 18 through 31 is an interchange. And the whole point the narrator wants you to see is, how are they the same, and how are they different? Because the question is, how can David be considered man after God's own heart and Saul isn't? What makes them different? And it's not that one was perfect, and had great behavior, and the other one didn't, because that's not true. That's what we misunderstand about David. I think sometimes we put him up on a pedestal so high in our churches that we don't realize that David's an absolute evil scumbag, in a lot of cases, a lot of cases. And I would never let him anywhere near my daughters. Right? When you learn what he's really like as a male chauvinist, <laughs> this section of 16 through 26 so the next 10 chapters is episodic narratives. So they're, they're not serial where they're all flowing and dependent upon the previous. We're just going to get choppy, independent stories to make these points of what's going on here. So chapter 16. The movement from chapter 15 to 16 is abrupt. And we don't know how much time has passed between 15 where God has rejected David, rejected Saul as king, and now David's being anointed. We're not talking about years, but we are talking about it could be weeks, it could be months. It's very abrupt, but that's what episodic narrative does. So chapter 16, verse 1. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long do you intend to mourn for Saul? I rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with olive oil. Go, I am sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem, for I have selected a king for myself from among his sons. God says, Okay, Stop whining about Saul. <laughs> Go out and find the new king. 
Fill your horn, and horn is symbolic of authority, power, and kingship. Fill it with oil, which is symbolic of the anointing of the Spirit on somebody as the chosen one, and go out to Jesse's house. Now, so far, David's name has never been mentioned. Back in chapter 15 and 13, he's just called, God says, I have found somebody who's a man after my own heart. But his name has never been mentioned. But we already know who Jesse is because of the book of Ruth. And so we know that Boaz had a son by the name of Obed, and Obed had a son by the name of Jesse. And so now we already know who this Jesse is in Bethlehem because this is the grandson of Boaz. And that's all you know so far. David's name is not mentioned yet. So he says, this is going to be the new king. Now notice he says, I'm sending you Jesse Bethlehem, for I have selected a king for myself from among his sons. That's going to be confusing to Samuel. So verse 2, Samuel replied, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. But Yahweh said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Then invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. you should do. You will anoint for me the one that I point out to you. Now Samuel's afraid for his life. Saul has now shown himself to be anti-Samuel. And we, don't, we haven't seen that. We don't know why. We just know that Samuel believes it. And Samuel's afraid for his life. So he says, if, if, I'm afraid to go by Bethlehem. Because going from Ramah to Bethlehem requires you to pass through Gibeah. And Gibeah is where Saul is. What should I do? And he, might, he knows I'm going for another king. And God says, just tell him you're going for a sacrifice. That's all you need to tell him. He doesn't need to know anymore. This isn't his business. This isn't his duty. Just tell him you're going for sacrifice and I will protect you. And Samuel goes. Samuel did what Yahweh told him. And when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the city were afraid to meet him. They're afraid to meet him because Saul's probably been putting pressure on them. He replied, yes, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves and come to me the sacrifice. So he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invite them to sacrifice. Now notice, just like there were elders present when Saul showed up and he said, come into my house, you're going to be king. And there was elders present there as he anointed them privately. The same thing is happening here. And we often think of like, okay, Saul was anointed privately. That wasn't true. There was elders there from Gibeah, or Ramah, sorry, from Ramah. And then we think it's just Jesse and his sons here, but that's not true. The elders are in Jesse's house as well. Because there's got to be witnesses. And, there's got to, and the elders have to be men of standing, men of respect in the community who meet the requirements of the law. And so he brings them in. Verse 6, Then they arrived, and Samuel noticed Eliab, and said to them, Surely here before Yahweh stands his chosen king. But Yahweh said to Samuel, Don't be impressed by his appearance, his height, for I have rejected them. God does not view things the way men do. People look at the outward appearances, but Yahweh looks at the heart. Now, that's a very famous passage we've read all our lives. But what's interesting is Samuel falls into the same trap as the people. He sees a tall, good-looking man who has a warrior structure. He says, surely this has got to be it. And if anybody should know that's not true, it should be Samuel. If anybody really understands the heart of God better than anybody right now, it's Samuel. And yet he still falls in the trap because this is what we're like as humans. 
it's easy for all of us to fall into that. We, we see things and we think, wow, you surely meet the bill. And God says, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter how athletic they are. That doesn't mean they are my chosen people. It doesn't matter how intelligent they are. It doesn't, mean they, they, it doesn't matter how experienced they are in other churches. That doesn't mean that's the one I've picked. And it's so easy to just fall into the resume. And not that the resume has no validity whatsoever. God never makes that point either. Yes, go out and find people who are completely unqualified all the time. Um, but there's a certain sense where you should be led by the Spirit of Yahweh as well. And what God is saying is like all that stuff doesn't matter if they don't have a heart for God. It doesn't matter how qualified they are that they don't have a heart for God. It doesn't matter if they're weak in a lot of like experience areas if they have a heart for God. Because a heart for God can grow. A heart for God is teachable. Now, once again, we shouldn't go to the extreme and just completely disregard lack of qualifications or experience or any of that kind of stuff. But the ultimate point is to be led by the Spirit. And what God is saying, and this is true of everything, it goes both ways. It doesn't matter how qualified and how attractive they are. That doesn't mean that that's one God wants. And it doesn't matter how jacked up and how many problems they have and how many addictions they are, doesn't mean that they're automatically rejected by God either. Because remember, the Pharisee looked really good. He prayed his heart out to God. And then the tax collector was a horrible scumbag, cheating people, was beating his chest. And God's like, that's the guy. That's the guy because his heart actually was repentant. And, and, that's, and that's the important thing is that we need to be led by the Spirit. And that's what Samuel's doing. Even though Samuel's thinking, this guy's it, does he disregard God and just pick who he wants to? No. He still leads, he lets God lead him even when he's completely confused. Because he's going to go through all the sons and none of them are picked. He's like, okay, wait a minute. I'm in the right place, but nobody's here. He's still being led by the Spirit even when he doesn't understand what's going on. So then Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. But Samuel said, the Yahweh has not chosen one either. And then Jesse presented Shammah, uh, or Shammah. But Samuel said, Yahweh has not chosen one either. Jesse presented seven of his sons to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen any of these. This just feels like a lot of repetitious to us. But if you were watching a TV show or a movie, this is building the suspense. Okay, you're like, oh my gosh, who is it? Who is it? And then it's like a commercial break. Then Samuel said to Jesse, is it all of your na'ars? He specifically says, is this all your na'ars? Now, na'ar can mean a young lad, like a son, or it can mean a servant. Because he thinks these are all the sons because he told Jesse to get all the sons. So he's leaving room for the fact that maybe God called him to anoint a servant in the house of Jesse. This is how confused Samuel is. He has no idea what's going on. All he knows is God hasn't pointed him out yet. There's still the youngest one, but he's taking care of the flock. And Samuel said to Jesse, send for him and get him, for we cannot turn our attention to other things until he comes here. Now notice David's name has still not been mentioned. I just have this young son. Now on the surface it feels like, wow, that's a jacked up father. Like, well, I got my youngest son. Who cares about him becoming king? So I left him out in the fields. Well, don't think that way because one, David's about 12 years old right now. And according to the law of God, he is not allowed to lead anybody until he is at least age 30. Which means he's not allowed to be king. 
In fact, will David become king when he becomes anointed? No. One of the reasons that God's going to delay David's kingship, even though he's anointed, is because David is not experienced enough to lead the nation yet. And part of him being chased by Saul is to give him experience. And the most important experience is to make him trust in God when he's completely on his own and his life is on the line. So he's not allowed to be king yet. And God has no intention of allowing him to take the throne yet because Saul still has to be king for a long time to punish the people. Father isn't thinking, oh, forget about my youngest son. I don't care about him. He's thinking there's no way that God would ever pick a 12-year-old boy because the law of God says he's not allowed to be king, period. And there's no way I'm leaving all my sheep completely unattended for all the wild animals and thieves to take them. I've got to leave somebody with them, and my son who's not allowed to be king is a good choice. If anything, this says a lot about David because he just left his entire business to who? A 12-year-old boy, trusting that it will be in good hands. And so if anything, his father actually has great trust in him because he's given him great responsibility. And what's interesting is that David as a 12-year-old boy, even though he's not qualified to be king yet, He's been entrusted with more and handling it better than Saul has handled the entire nation. And so this is shows. So he's immediately presented as a shepherd. Now this is important because Saul doesn't seem like he was taking care of anybody. In fact, he couldn't even keep track of his own donkeys. And now David's being presented as a shepherd. Someone who's taking care of really dumb animals that constantly need constant attention all the time, and he's doing it completely on his own. And then in chapter 17, we're going to find out that he's able to fight bears and lions with his own bare hands because the Spirit of Yahweh is upon him. Way before he was ever anointed as king. This is how he's presented. So this isn't a lack of respect on his father's behalf. It's just common sense. It's like if you're like, oh, one of your sons are going to be president. It's like, well, my 12-year-old boy cannot be president. That's not possible. Nor would I vote for my 12-year-old boy, no matter how mature he is. So Jesse brought him in, and now he was ruddy, with an attractive eyes and handsome in appearance. And Yahweh said, go anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn full of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David. And from that day onward... Then Samuel got up and went to Ramah. Now, what does the narrator tell you about David? Good He's good looking. Wait a minute. The narrator had, keeps making this point that Saul was good looking and that's exactly the reason that people want him and that's exactly why he's going to fail. Then Elab is good looking and Samuel's thinking that's it. And God says, no, I don't pick people based on that. And then he picks David and says, and he's good looking. <laughs> You're like, okay, wait a minute, God. You want a man after God's own heart, but he still has to be good looking. No, that's not at all. Now remember, context, 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 context is how you interpret the scriptures. And you interpret in the context of the genre you interpret in the context of the passage, the book, and the entire Bible. And there's nothing in the passage or the book to interpret it, then there's a context in the greater Bible. 
And the question is, every single time somebody's looks are mentioned, which is very rare, what happens? Bad stuff. Okay, there's very few. We're told Sarai, and bad things happen. We're told that Rebecca's good-looking, bad things happen. We're told that Rachel's good-looking, bad things happen. We're told that Joseph is good-looking, bad things happen. He's one of the one cases where it didn't happen because of his own fault. It happened to him. There's very rare times. Saul, told he's good-looking, bad things happen. Bathsheba, told she's good-looking, bad things happen. Those are really the only cases so far. There might be one other that I'm missing. But of all the people that we've been introduced to, those, those are the only times that looks are ever mentioned. Later we're going to get to Abigail. Good looking, bad things happen. <laughs> and that context tells you that when God mentions good looks, it doesn't mean that people with good looks are bad people, but it means that there's a temptation that comes with being good looking that other people don't have. And there's usually a thing that goes along with that, and it doesn't work out well. So what is the narrator telling you here? He's throwing out a warning, an alert. It's kind of like when you're turning on the weather app and it says, alert, weather alert. There's going to be high winds or icy storms. It's like, it's not that you shouldn't, it's not that horrible, evil, bad things are going to happen to you or the storm is evil, but there could be bad things that will happen. And what he's telling you this is this. David is a man after Yahweh's own heart. But is David perfect? Does David have flaws? And he's letting you know that don't you dare think for one second, just because he's a man after God's own heart, that there aren't any warning signs here. And there aren't any alerts. Moses was one of the greatest men of God that's ever lived, according to the Bible. And yet he screwed up too, big time. And so the narrator's immediately tipping you off of, yes, but keep your eyes open and watch this kid carefully. Because he is good looking and there's going to be temptation that's going to come with that. And will he handle it correctly? He's a man of goes on heart, but that doesn't mean he's perfect. And so the narrator's alerting you to dangers alerts and the question is what's going on the next thing it tells you is that the spirit of Yahweh came upon him and stayed on him the entire time which immediately is setting you up for the fact that David will not be rejected by God like Saul was but then the very next verse says now the spirit of Yahweh had turned away or departed from Saul and an evil spirit from Yahweh tormented him Even though we have two kings simultaneously, there can only be one anointed. And the minute that David is anointed, Saul is de-anointed, so to speak. And this immediately sets him up as a king like all the other nations. We talked about this last time. Is that what makes you truly unlike the world is that you have a relationship with God and the world doesn't. And that when you have problems that you're dealing with in your life, you have God that you can go to and the world doesn't. Now Saul is literally completely on his own in his own wisdom and the wisdom of the people around him. And in this way, he is now truly a king like all the other nations, making every decision without God. Any moment he can turn to God and will God be there for him? Yes, but he won't. 
it says an evil spirit was sent upon him. Now, a lot of people struggle with this because they're like, how could God send a demon upon him? Well, one, God can do anything he wants. But two, it actually doesn't mean that this is an evil spirit in its nature. The word here is ra. Okay, R-A, very simple. The word raw can mean destructive, tormenting. Um, um, some other words are, I just went blank, injurious. It can mean anything. It doesn't necessarily mean evil ontologically in its essence, nature, and being. It can mean that it's, it's an injurious spirit. Okay? And, and sometimes God is injurious. He is tormenting. The flood, that doesn't make God evil, but a lot of people got injured in the flood. And so you could say this is raw. In fact, when we get to Amos chapter 3, verse 6, it uses this word raw in the same context by what it is doing. The better way to interpret this is not that the spirit itself and its being and nature is an evil spirit, but the spirit is going to come upon Saul and injure him and torment him. He's doing injurious things to him. He's doing tormenting things to him. So don't interpret this as the nature of the spirit is evil, but rather what it's doing is injurious and tormenting. And that's the better way to understand it. And so God is bringing a spirit that is going to punish Saul and torment him in the same way that he brought the flood that did raw upon the world. It brought injury and it brought punishment. And so this is the thing. And now it's going to make Saul go insane. We can't psychoanalyze people in the Bible based on the very little evidence that we have. But there will, does seem to be some signs of a bipolar kind of a nature with Saul here as they're going through. And I, nor is there enough information to clinically diagnose him as that, but it does seem like we're going to see like one moment he's like, oh, I love you, David. And the next moment he's like trying to kill him. That's not normal. So the Spirit comes upon him. Let our Lord instruct his servants who are here before you to look for a man who knows how to play the lyre. Then whenever the evil spirit from God comes upon you, he can play the lyre and you will feel better. So Saul said to his servants, Find me a man who plays well and bring him to me. One of his attendants replied, I have seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave warrior, and he is articulate and handsome, for Yahweh is with him. What are the qualifications? What, what do they need? What are they looking for? Someone who can play music, right? Now, we all know that music can be very soothing for illnesses, for mental disturbance, for being anxious, being angry, that kind of stuff. That makes sense. But the first thing the, the, the servant says is, I know a guy who is a good warrior. Wait a minute, that was not the qualifications. Okay, it's like looking for a new music director. And you're like, I know somebody who's great at kickboxing. You're like, that's not what we're really looking for. Why does he mention that? Because Saul is a king. And we've already been told previously that whenever Saul found somebody who was a warrior, he recruited him in his palace. He's trying to justify another reason for bringing David in. And he, David can't, he doesn't think that David will get in just on his music capability. But if he's a great warrior, then there's a better chance that he can get into the palace. 
and he has to be useful in more than just one way. And servant goes that way. He also mentioned his good looks because there might be something about Saul that he already knows that that's what Saul's thinking too. And so he's listing extra criteria to make David more noticeable. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is out for out with the sheep. Now once again, it emphasizes again that he's taking care of sheep. And the emphasis is that Saul's not taking care of his sheep, the Israelites. So Jesse took a donkey's load of bread, a container of wine, and a young goat, and sent him to Saul with his son David. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and Saul liked him a great deal, and he became his armor bearer. And when Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Let David be my servant, for I really like him. So David's brought in, and he automatically is liked. And he's going to become his armor bearer. We already talked about what armor bearer is. He's a, like the lieutenant, and he already promotes him. And that's interesting. They need a musician, but Saul automatically hires him as a warrior. And the servant knows exactly what Saul's looking for. See, everybody in the palace says, we need a musician to help Saul. But all Saul thinks is, I need a warrior. I want warriors. He's trying to meet that criteria. Now, here's what's interesting. The music becomes the stage that brings David into the palace. God is using Saul being tormented by this evil spirit to get David into the palace. And then Saul's desire for a warrior is going to get David into his army, which then is going to allow David to begin to deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines, which is exactly what Saul is supposed to be doing and what the king is supposed to be doing. God is working behind the scenes to get David in the right place, even though David doesn't know the right people and he doesn't have the right family status to be there. Because yes, knowing the right people and having good family status is beneficial, but if God wants you there, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So he comes in and Saul says, you will be my Na'ar. If I really like him. Now, this is important too. Saul starts off liking him a lot. They have a good relationship. In fact, we're going to find out later that David will almost view Saul like a second father. Or like, like a really cool mentor at church or something like that. And they're going to build a really good relationship with each other. So whenever the Spirit of God, from God, would come upon Saul, David would take his lyre and play it. And this would bring relief to Saul and make him feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him alone. So this is how he's showing himself useful. Now, David is one of those people that you just hate. He's athletic, he's a warrior, he's good-looking, he's musical, like, he has everything. And you're just like, you suck, right? You're good at everything. But at the same time, that's going to set him up for other things like pride and arrogance, and self-reliance. And there's a danger here. Automatically, you're being let know that things are not totally right. 